1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I recently spoke with Eric Schlüssel about his new book, Land of Strangers, the Civilizing Project in Qing Central Asia. This came out with Columbia University Press in 2020. And this is a book about, in the words of the book, what happened when, at the end of the 19th century, a group of elite men from China gained control over a Muslim-majority region of Central Asia and attempted to transform it according to their own vision of an ideal Confucian society. This book describes the ramifications of this project for ordinary people. And these are ordinary people in Xinjiang, East Turkestan, and people specifically in one part of Xinjiang, Turpan. This was a directly administered prefecture within the provincial system at the end of the Qing, meaning that it was a place where ordinary people routinely came into contact with, grappled with, and contested this civilizing project. And the book really looks at this project from all angles. It covers the origins of it, the socio-cultural effects that followed, and how the project played out in historical imaginations. So this is a book that is doing a lot of really important work. This is a lucid history of a borderland that makes a compelling case for why we should look at the borderland, the periphery. This is a book that confidently takes on the issue of Qing colonialism head-on and unpacks it, and most importantly, this is a history from below, a history of ordinary people and everyday politics, one that looks at how ordinary people adjusted and contested in quiet, subtle everyday ways state norms and institutions. This is a book that reveals how people, ordinary people resisted and co-opted the state and the authority of the state for their own means. And this is also a multilingual archival feat. This book is built on a multilingual Chagatai and Chinese archive, an archive that is ragged, as Eric puts it in the book. This book stitches together the fragments that make up the Turpan archive. It pieces together the accounts of a soldier from Hunan who, after he winds up in Xinjiang in a drunken rage, driven by his inability to travel home to see his mother, kills his friend but then escapes the ordinary punishment that would meet him uh, due to his status. It pairs us with the testimony of a concubine sold to a Chinese soldier by her adopted Muslim parents, who then asserts that she is Chinese and so uh, she should not be returned to her parents. And the you know, even looks at the case of an eight-year-old boy who finds a human head, the body of someone who died during the Muslim uprisings while gathering kindling. So this is a book that is filled with these kinds of stories, but so many more. And they're all stories of individual, unique people. This book is about identity and belonging, community and colonialism. It is deeply intimate and visceral, and it is beautiful. It is beautifully written. It has been beautifully crafted. I've read it multiple times now, and every time I find something new in it, from the way that examples are stitched together to how names and translations are handled to, you know, really just great turns of phrases every time I find something new to admire and enjoy. You should, no matter what you work on, read it. And even if you are not the kind of person who is interested in this kind of social history, if you work on Chinese history at all, the very least you need to read the introduction and chapter one. It will give you a very clear understanding of the history of this region and what is going on in Xinjiang with attempts to change and civilize it at the end of the 19th century, attempts that are strikingly and uncomfortably familiar to what is going on today. So with this, I really hope you get a chance to read this book, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Eric that follows. I'm here today with Eric Schlüssel to talk about his new book, Land of Strangers, The Civilizing Project in Qing, Central Asia. Welcome to New Books, Eric, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Hey, thank you so much. It's it's good to be here, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Great. So why don't we start uh, at the beginning with your beginning? So Eric, could you say a little bit about how you came to be a historian and a social historian of China and Central Asia in particular?
1: Yes. Uh, so this has been a winding intellectual journey. Um, in many ways, I still think of myself as kind of a lost social scientist, um, who's you know found the right home in the past. I, I began many years ago in linguistics um, and got really interested in sort of Chinese language and minority languages in China. Um, and you know, beginning to study things like Manchu and and Uyghur language got me into questions of sociology of language and. The, the whole politics surrounding language and language rights, uh, particularly in the Uyghur homeland. Um, but, you know, when I attempted to research these questions, I realized that they were very, very fraught and that there seemed to be something missing in the way that people framed these questions, often in a very presentist fashion. Uh, you know, when I was living uh, in Ürümqi and studying at Xinjiang Normal University, I, I just fell into this habit of looking for deep, deep context. Uh, I began reading very deeply in Uyghur language histories of the region um, and trying to think of the ways in which, you know, elite experiences and elite stories about uh, macro-level ethnic conflict were covering over deeper, more complex histories of identification, of becoming, uh, of accommodation with and struggles with uh, Chinese power or the Chinese state. Um and simply, what I found was that the, the story of the Uyghur homeland is very, very complex. And in order to attend to that complexity and really do justice to it, I thought, you know, it, we needed to have. Uh, I'm grace to heart, aren't I? Um,
2: <laughs> follow the thought.
1: Follow the thought. Um, but it's simply that we needed to to look more at historical contingency and the various ways in which people have engaged with Chinese power that do not necessarily map onto the straightforward lines of conflict that we might see today uh, in an age of, you know, much stronger state power, you know, assimilatory projects, and and well-articulated modern nationalism. Um, in particular, you know, I thought the way that we've always talked about the Uyghur homeland and the Uyghur experience in the 20th century has emphasized issues of sort of history of ideals or even history of spirit. Whereas, you know, what people I knew, you know, she always talked a lot more about the material dimensions of life, about questions of survival and economy. And, you know, moreover, I simply found that whereas maybe I wasn't personally suited to the kind of intensive hanging out that was necessary for good anthropological research. I am very good at sitting down for six weeks alone in a library. Uh, And then processing all of that material into some kind of argument. It's, it's. I'm, I'm simply simply born with the disposition of a historian, and that's, that's where I found a a comfortable home for myself. Um,
2: yeah. I love thinking about your journey to becoming a historian. Um, How, if I'm understanding you correctly, how. What led you to that was really understanding yourself and the kind of work that you are suited to. Um, So favoring, you know, intensive solitude um, in the library as opposed to intensive hanging out. Um, I love
1: love that. Some of our brains are wired a certain way, and it it, it was important to acknowledge the way that my brain is wired. And honestly, you know, I think that's also part of the story of this book. Um, You know, a lot of the of the initial research for this work. one of your questions that you sent me, you asked about, you know, the use of ragged sources. And I think part of what that spoke to was a sense of fracturing that I even had in my own life. When I began the research for this work, I was in this sort of place, you know, as a person where, you know, I was thinking about the contingent nature of narrative and the way that we narrativize our own lives, the ways that those intersect with, you know, bigger stories that are beyond us. Um, on a broader level, I think you know, um, this book is in some ways a reflection through the history of of the Uyghur homeland, the nineteenth and early twentieth century, is on the condition of the early twenty first century, um, and the ways that public memory has 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 played out since 9-11, since two thousand one. Um, yeah. So apart from that, you know, there's also this strong dimension to the book that I think it became really clear as I was revising it, uh, really in, in the late, later months of 2019, where I'd begun it in 2012 when the Uyghur region, where Xinjiang was in a very different place. And, you know, I was writing this history of assimilation um, in the late Qing, in part to show how different uh, the assimilatory policies of the late Qing were to the developmental state that we saw in. Uh, in Xinjiang in the, the late 20th and early 21st centuries. But you know, by the time I, I finished the dissertation in 2016, things were already changing. And by the time the book was being revised, we saw a really strong revival of sort of assimilatory programs with some people who have characterized as a cultural genocide in the Uyghur region. Um, so it's been really strange seeing this book change as I've changed as the zeitgeist in America has changed, and also as the world has changed, in particular the politics in the Uyghur region. I don't know if you can use that material for anything.
2: <laughs> no, ab- no, absolutely. And thank you for, you know, charting out not just your own history, but, you know, touching on the modern history of both Xinjiang, but also the current history of the book and where, you know, where it sits of, with that, I wonder if we could get deeper into what you've already alluded to, the the sources, right? Um, and this sort of brings us back to the beginning of this book. Um, you know, because as you said, at at its most, you know, very at the most basic level, this book is about Xinjiang, East Turkestan at the end of the Qing period. But this is not, as you've already hinted on, this is not a history of great men. This is not the history of Xinjiang told from the perspective of the Qing state using Chinese sources. And this is not a history that, as I understand it, you're seeking to politicize for current-day purposes. This is a very different history told, as you put it in the book, and I'm quoting from the book here, uh, using sources no one thought were relevant, an oral account of venereal diseases, a scathing poem about interpreters, um, telegraphic reports of capital punishment, mundane fights over cows. You say elsewhere that the sources that you use are ragged, which I love as a way to describe sources. Uh, So could you talk a little bit more about this? What made you decide to use ragged sources and what are the kinds of sources that you're using in this book?
1: I wonder if you've ever experienced this. Uh, One of the best archives for the history of the Uyghur homeland that is actually open in the world is in Lund, Sweden, of all places. And there you can go and you can pick up these manuscripts, which are covered in, in sort of uncured rawhide and you pick them up and tactilely, they feel like a dead thing. They feel in many ways like it's almost like, like holding a dead animal in your hands. And the smell of them has this strong scent of the barnyard. Um, so I've always been very struck by that, that dimension of the research by engaging tactilely and sensually with the sources. But, you know, it, it began with, honestly, most of my interventions in research are very naive. They're intentionally naive. One of the most productive things I've found, and maybe this is good advice for any grad students listening to this podcast, is when you're looking at the Uyghur homeland, ask a question that's been asked in China proper that no one thought was possible to ask in Xinjiang because they think it's impossible or because they think the sources aren't there. As a student, I was always most inspired by the local level social history of China in the late imperial period. Uh, by Melissa Macaulay, Bradley Reed, especially by books like Jeffrey Snyder Rank's Dry Spells, which went straight to the heart of how does imperial power function in the locality? How does uh, a newly arrived magistrate, for example, engage with the to them very alien society that they're that they're sent to administer? Um because, you know, you, you can see all these contradictions in that process, you see the misrepresentations that people make often on purpose to government, and you you problematize, um, you know, the, the sort of metropolitan level archives that we're used to working with from Beijing. You see how uh, so much is missing when we only look at the locality from the perspective of the capital. So I, I kept wondering, given that the history of Xinjiang is so often written from the top down, from archives that present themselves as ready to be used and that are entirely Chinese well what if we could find something that spoke to the same concerns uh, say the history of clerks and yamen runners uh, of local bullies and pettifoggers if you like in a place like Yarkhand um, this is one of those pauses you'll we'll have to edit out later on <laughs> uh, I have, I have no <laughs> There are some of these, so, uh, blah, 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 blah. and so because, you know, with due respect to my colleagues, you know, who've done really good work on sort of policy and political history in Xinjiang, um, and Justin Jacobs has written a wonderfully readable history of that, and recently um, Judd Kinsley has written a great history about resource extraction of the region. Um, I think that we, we still focus too much on, the col- on, on whether or not the state was colonial, and not enough on how those policies, if they played on the local level, because we're looking at a very weak state in this period, how they affected ordinary life. Um, and so just as an act of tremendous um, contrariness, I went straight to one of these uh, sources. It's an oral interview. And you mentioned it yourself, a discussion of venereal disease, which was recorded, in, I believe, 1892. And I think the translation of it uh, isn't even, it was recorded by a Russian scholar and, and a German scholar. The translation of it is in Latin because it's so filthy, it's not its not meant to be read. Um, so I went straight to this, in part just because of was being really contrary, and I was like, okay, what if we didn't look at, if we looked at something that no one in the capital would care about or want us to think about? And what it gave me was this discussion of intimacy and ethnicity immediately. It went straight to the very heart of what we think are the major questions about the history of the Uyghur homeland, which has for decades, it's been a question of ethnicity and politics. And so I was thinking, okay, well, what else do people think about bodies? What do people say about these interactions in the everyday? Um, How does Chinese power play out from the perspective of a Turkic-speaking Muslim person who has not previously had to deal with the imperial state on the everyday level, the way the people in China proper have. So a number of these sources came out and they all spoke to interesting questions in, say, the comparative history of colonialism as the field now stands. Serendipitously, in 2012, Guangxi Normal University Press published the late Qing archive of Turban in facsimile, uh, which was absolutely amazing and remains amazing. There's still so much to be gained from that archive. While... On a site called Archives.gov.cn, uh, which I don't think it, I think has been taken down recently, a large amount of the Republican era archive was also published in facsimile, which meant that all these scraps and poems and oral histories that I was reading started to illuminate things that were unspoken in the official archive or that were not speakable, not articulable in the language of the state, and in turn, the archive gave context to what I was seeing in those rather scattered. Uh, sources gathered by ethnographers or or by missionaries and things like that. Um, you know the the last leg of that. Um, well, there are, there are two last legs of it. This is a five legged stool. Uh, <laughs> uh, reading Swedish missionary archives really helped because Chinese archives pretended that they didn't see Turkic Muslim society and sources in Chagatai or pre modern Uyghur pretended not to see the state for the most part, but missionaries who had been in situ for a long time uh, addressed both sides of that equation. And meanwhile, I revisited uh, some of the great histories of this period by people like Mullah Musa Sayrami, um, Mm -hmm. whose Tarihi Hamidi plays a big role in this book, uh, and looked at their work anew as an artifact of a period of Chinese domination over (laughs) Muslim people and by reading it in that light, you, know, you really see how these authors are also reflecting upon the nature of Chinese power in their own time. So all of these things together formed a, a really complex, uh, interesting picture of society and culture uh, in in late Qing, Xinjiang.
2: Perfect. I just want to you know pull out a number of things that you mentioned that we're going to come back to. Right? You mentioned bodies, the everyday. <laughs> Um, Rabi, we're all we're going to come back to all of these things. But the other thing that I just want to follow through with now is colonialism. Um, there's no great segue for this, uh, but it looms quite large um, in this book, right? Because, you know, with these ragged sources, um, you are, and your focus on identity in Xinjiang in particular, um, you are really illuminating... <laughs> The uh, negotiated and everyday nature of identity during this period, the late Qing, um, and you know, this is a time when Xinjiang was a province, one that was the subject of a, as the title of your book makes clear, civilizing project. And you know, this, of course, the idea, the idea of a civilizing project, and the you know enactment of a civilizing project, invokes civilizing projects elsewhere. Uh, one that. Ones that you know characterize specific forms of colonialism, and I should note that you are very, very careful with how you use that idea, that term in this book. You know, you note that the Qing Empire is very often, very uh, casually referred to as colonial, and you also note that your primary goal is not to typologize uh, Xinjiang. So, with all of those <laughs> caveats in place, um, could you talk a little bit about this? What does the concept of colonialism? do for you in this book? And how are you using it?
1: Thanks for saying that. Um, we, we need to use our concepts surgically when we do comparison. Um, I've complained many times about sort of the this British Indian hyper-real that I think we all have in our minds. A lot of us do as historians of, of the Qing and the post-Qing uh, when we do comparison. Um, colonialism does a number of things for me here. But first, I want to say that it's not strictly necessary to use the word colonialism to describe everything that I'm saying here, and in, when I've given talks on this subject in China, where of course we have to be very careful about this terminology because it has it's so politically freed in that context, you know, I've had people in the audience afterwards say, "Well, that sounds like colonialism." Um, so I think I'm, I'm I think I've I've pulled something out of this uh, of this set of phenomena that that does speak to that comparison uh, very organically, indeed. At first I had really rejected the idea that I was going to be doing a project about colonialism. I, I I think for three solid years, I just tried to let the sources speak for themselves. And what they kept speaking to, um, what they kept demanding that I pay attention to, and this is what structured the chapters of the book, uh, were all these problems about of, uh, of domination, all these problems of domination and intimacy, uh, all these problems of sort of assimilation and who and representation. Um and the encounter between uh, people and a kind of power that wants to change their way of life. And that's how the Civilizing Project ended up at the, at, at the core of this, because across all of the sources, that is what kept coming up. So I define colonialism here as a system of domination aimed at territorial acquisition through socio-political reorganization. And I think that that's, that definition gives me enough latitude for comparison, while still constraining the definition mm-hmm. enough, and focusing on the social dimensions of domination. I, I always liked Emma Tung's intervention in Taiwan's Imagine Geography, where she points out that colonialism serves us best as a grounds for discourse and for comparison, and to lead us to a set of questions that leads us in turn to other, probably more interesting questions. And in this case, part of what I'm doing is to try and get past the way that we talk about colonialism a lot in the Qing field, which tends to focus on institutional structures um, and sort of the way that places are administered from Beijing. And put this instead into dialogue with what's been written more recently in, say, Southeast Asia, I'm thinking of Ann Stoller, Sub-Saharan Africa with Alice Conklin her work on um, Civilizing Mission there, but also histories of settler colonialism in Canada and the US. So this definition allows me more finely grained comparisons that speak to specific phenomena that are associated with colonialism because they have an elective affinity with a number of other phenomena. That lets me think on a more macro level, right? So I like, um, Lauren Bent has this idea that sort of imperialism points to a confident plural politics and expanding empire, while colonialism as more assimilatory project reflects maybe a weakening or a struggling empire. And this allows me to think about the Qing, also in in comparative terms, as a confident plural empire that is moving into a period of uh, crisis in which certain specific actors seek to strengthen that state by engaging in cultural assimilation. Um, and so finding on the middle level, you know, that it lets me think about Qing statecraft in a new way, to consider how these ideas about social political organization or reorganization were changing in the 19th century. So what do territorial acquisition and social political reorganization mean to different parties? How is the Qing state being contested? Because it clearly is in this period, especially where it concerns the fate of Xinjiang. I think without trying to address those intellectual dimensions of this project, of uh, sort of this distinctive colonial formation, uh, I wouldn't have realized the significance of the Taiping era and its effects on Confucian thought, not just for the creation of Xinjiang as a province, but also for the reorganization of China proper in the Taiping civil war and its reconstruction. So it does all these things for me when uh, I dig down to the local level, lets me put these phenomena to dialogue globally, but also with other parts of China where we see surprising parallels. It it even leads me to wonder, you know, on some level, is the imperial Chinese state always colonial, regardless of which region we're looking at? And it's just more obvious when we get to the borderland. That leads to a bigger question that we can't resolve here, which is where is coloniality? This isn't a pause I think that's sort of where I'm, I'm coming to rest on that question
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> i wasn't I was giving it a moment to just see <laughs> <where> <laughs> just, <the> pause, <laughs> to just see where where the pause was going um but with that you mentioned uh there you know that you see certain things in Xinjiang more clearly than elsewhere right which reminds me, be, at least more, more clearly than China proper, right, which allows you to ask the question about, uh, you know, what, <laughs> of what colonial is throughout China elsewhere, but, you know, uh, reflecting on it in this specific um, border region. And this really reminds me of chapter two in particular, but before we get there, we have to deal with chapter one. Um, so why don't we move further into the book? Uh, because this book really, you know, has three parts. The first consists of chapter one and two, and chapter one. I think you beautifully set us up for it because chapter one presents the origin of the civilizing project uh, in Xinjiang that you've already touched on, and in particular emphasizes how the project pursued there really grew out of the alignment of interests and ideas within statecraft thought, uh, which had at its foundations a vision a vision of China as as civilization and territory, a vision rooted in the Chinese classics. And A lot of this chapter focuses on uh, the idea of Li, often translated as rights, but which you show in this chapter really has a law-like quality, a, a law-like spine, especially as the Xiang army went about trying to enforce Li and bring it to Xinjiang. Um, but before you know, diving too much further into this, I was hoping you might, you know, set the scene, set the stage for us as it as it was um, in talking about the Young army and the civilizing project as a whole. So what do we need to know about this history to understand what is going on in the book? What context do we need to have?
1: So, you know, it's it, the Xiang army are often called the Hunan army. Uh, was not just an army. It was a social and an ideological formation. It was a community of people with a common geographical origin and a common set of commitments. And this is the community that ruled Xinjiang until the end of the Qing. Now, that's not how we typically think about the Xiang army or the Hunan army in our historiographical consciousness. We think of the Xiang army as an army that emerges out of local militias in Hunan during the Taiping War and that beats back the Taiping then kind of disappears, and as leaders go on to important things in government, and they have all these practical ideas that lead to military modernization and so it can be very easy for us to think of uh, the Xiang Army, especially when we teach the survey class, almost as precursors to secular nationalism in China um, but there's been this a new set of there's been a new wave of scholarship the past several years i 'm thinking of uh, Toby Myrafong, Stephen Platt, Bill Rowe, uh, and all their students. Um, uh, in China Wang Ji several others, and now you know have dissertations by Catherine Alexander, Hannah Thieker, there's a bunch of people, I think Vincent Goser's looking at this too, who are understanding, as I think some scholars also realize in the 60s and 70s, that the Xiang army was also driven by this almost eschatological mission, this this almost religious zealotry. Um this mission to remake Chinese society and thus save Chinese civilization. You know, they, their leadership came out of this uh, small intellectual group centered around the Yuelu Academy in Changsha who uh, understood things like the the remaking of Xinjiang as a province, not merely as a set of practical solutions for the enrichment of the state, but rather as um, a way to expand the, the Chinese ecumen, the civilizational boundaries of China that have been pushed back by waves of, of barbarism and the loss of proper ritual. That's the Li that you mentioned. And you know, I noticed it was very, very funny that uh, it kept popping up in the sources that uh, Turkic Muslim people in Xinjiang kept wondering what was this Li thing that the Xi'an army was so obsessed with? It was a syllable and it meant something like law and they wanted to enforce it it has something to do with morality, um, and you know when you look at the official sources that the the leaders of the army were writing as they moved into into the region as they tried to remake it, they were also emphasizing the need for all these Muslims to remake their families and the need to teach proper rites and rituals to Muslims so that they would marry properly and have proper ancestral rituals and thus cultivate kind of an ancestral consciousness that would lead them spontaneously to become good, civilized, ideal Confucians. Um, It's been pointed out to me that this is also what they hoped they could do back in in Hunan and central China uh, as a way of reclaiming that territory from the chaos of the Taiping, which they saw as also being caused by a loss of proper ritual and proper rites. Um, But of course, once again, when you get out to the borderland, uh, this kind of maybe you might call it a civilizing project that breaks down along class lines, uh, an attempt to civilize, say, the so-called bear sticks, the Guanggun of central China, is articulated quite differently in a borderland with uh, where where they're operating ac- across such great cultural distance. You know, We think of all Han Chinese people as belonging to a single ethnic group, but when you get out to a Muslim-majority, non-Chinese-speaking borderland, you can really see how um, the emphasis on rites and rituals uh, comes to resemble a classical, a classic colonial civilizing project. And so I feel like I've talked in a circle. Um, is there anything I should come back to?
2: <laughs> I don't think so, no.
1: And so that's why, you know, Sairami, um, who's been my constant companion these past several years, uh, and whose book I'm now translating, uh, finishing up a translation of, you know, he talks about this Li thing as a kind of Chinese Sharia. There's this this contrast in in most the Islamic world between the, the temporal law of the Sultan, what they often call qanun or something like that, uh, and the Sharia, which is you know God's will on earth as realized through Islamic jurisprudence. And he and a few other writers in this time noted that you know China seemed to have that same distinction as well. That previously they had lived under the sultanic law. Of the so-called Court of Colonial Affairs of the Yifan Yuan, um, And during the plural imperial era of the Qing uh, in the early 19th century, before the Muslim uprisings, um, you know they had simply been subjects of Qing law, but now this this new version of the Qing had come back, and these Xiang Army people who now controlled the province. Um, seem to want to enforce a kind of moral code based on scripture. And that's really quite right. You know, the, the Xiong army themselves had found many, many ways in their, um, had found many ways. The Xiong army leadership had found many ways by deploying these supposedly efficient or time-saving or money-saving, um, measures to, uh, suspend imperial law and instead enforce their own vision of the rights. So instead of, you know, really reconstructing the areas that they controlled for the benefit of, of, of the Qing. They're reconstructing it for the benefit of what they saw as civilization.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Thank you so much for mentioning uh Syraami me in particular, who we're, we're we are going to see again. So he's not just your he has not he's not just your companion, <laughs> he is the reader's companion. Uh, or at least that's that's how I felt. Uh, because we he will come up later. Uh, but you mentioned that, you know, the, the, the Xiang army constructing law. Um, and this really takes us then into chapter two, because if chapter one was sort of all about how Xinjiang was supposed to be assimilated, the grand project, uh, chapter two, in many ways, you know, really shows the limits of that, or at least the problems of, uh, of enacting that assimilative project. Um, and it tracks, as it does, the idea of Xinjiang as an exceptional place. Uh, as an exceptional space, you say that the history of late Qing Xinjiang is not, in fact, the history of the region's assimilation into the Chinese political system so much as its construction as an exception within it. And this really comes through in this chapter uh, when you look at the legal system. So you talk in particular about how Xinjiang became a zone of legal exemption. So, for example, the chief technique of punishment that was used uh, here was the execution of people on the spot. And you explain that, you know, this technique was used elsewhere in the Qing, uh, but elsewhere, local officials were not permanently allowed to have power over life and death as they were in Xinjiang. Elsewhere in the Qing, this was a technique reserved for times of war, in times of rebellion. Um, but in Xinjiang, this was moved into the hands of local officials to order society sort of permanently. Um, So is there anything that you wanted to really emphasize about this chapter, Uh, anything about the legal system Uh, before we move on to chapters three and four to look closer Mm. at how the civilizing project, uh, you know, how it played out? Is there anything you wanted to just mark about chapter two here?
1: Mm. Yeah, so I'll try to keep this pretty simple, but the political history of late Qing Xinjiang is a tragedy of errors in many ways. You can see uh, from everything being written by the people in charge of the province, that it's a constant struggle to implement what they seem to think of as uh, Zuo Zongtang's, uh, an original ideal plan for the region. So General Zuo, uh, Zuo Zongtang, is often associated with Xinjiang because he was kind of the architect of his remaking as a province, uh, even though he left that project entirely to his heirs. And indeed, most of the later governors had been very much part of his inner circle. Um they had this brief to normalize the region, right, to turn this culturally distinct region into something like the provinces of China proper, and they had to do so on a 17-year time frame. At least that was the idea, was that they would be able to remake the region through education and through rectifying the family so that uh, it would look more like Hunan, despite being ecologically radically different. Um, and I'll just point you very briefly to um, um, Peter Lavelle's recent book, which also touches on these issues, uh, particularly from an environmental history perspective. Um, but of course, normalization uh, has this inherent tension that we see in all sorts of different colonial, uh, colonial regimes. am thinking in particular of um, what became the frontier tribal areas of Pakistan and British India, where in order to normalize something, it must be made different. And it is that difference that the state must constantly act upon in order to assimilate the other. Mm. This plays out in Xinjiang uh, in no small part through the legal system, which is divided in two, um, between this exceptional technique of swift or immediate punishment on the spot, uh, which you would think is being used uh, to punish non, sort of ethnically non-Chinese people, but in fact it seems to be deployed against violations of the rights, violations of morality. Uh, this is a technique whereby execution may be performed without first securing the, the permission of the emperor. And the Xiang army regime deployed this really, really frequently, all the way until the end of the Qing dynasty, in order to punish offenses that they saw as bringing instability to the family uh, and to the uh, social moral rectification of Muslim society. Um. Oh, God, I'm just all over the place. Uh. So here, here's how I'll bring it back. Um, so what I want to emphasize here is that Xinjiang was not being constructed as a zone of exception because people there were ethnically different necessarily. And we don't really see the racialized discourse of difference uh, in the Qing documents, in the individual documents that you think we would see. Rather, we see Xinjiang constructed as an exception within the Qing legal system because of its fallen moral state. Um, God, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm really all over the place now. Uh, what, what this does for us in some ways is to, okay, this helps us see that Xinjiang as a province or a place becoming a province or that never perfectly becomes a province is in many ways, like the other places in China proper that the Xiang army dominated. So it actually, uh, an ordinary person living under the Xiang army regime in Xinjiang in the very late Qing is a lot like a person living in Hunan under the Xiang army regime in the late Qing.
2: So you mentioned there, you know, in, in the, uh, the project of assimilation, that there's sort of two realms that we're really focused on, uh, education and the family, and sort of bringing about this, uh, this civilized um, Xinjiang. So this sort of brings us beautifully into the, next, into the next part of the book in chapters three and four. And chapter three, I feel like I need to own up to it. Chapter three is probably my favorite chapter because it focuses on interpreters, uh, yes. by fluid intermediaries trained through uh, Chinese language and really Chinese value uh, schools, who more often than not, as you show in this chapter, use their grasp of the Chinese language and you know official culture to their own advantage. Um, and you take us through here in this part of the book, the various ways that interpreters manipulated language, particularly um, as you're able to see it through legal cases. So you compare, for example, the original Chagatai petition and its its Chinese translation, and you point out that more often than not, interpreters were not merely translating, but they were making uh, Muslim subjects in Xinjiang speak in ways that were intelligible. Uh, to the center. So, for example, you show how they interpreted an individual's oral speech so that it could be written down in literary Chinese, how they replaced um, local categories uh, with perceived Chinese equivalents, you know, thus representing their clients as normative imperial subjects. Mm -hmm. And all of this, you know, interpreting led interpreters to be uh, painted as suspicious, divisive figures, and you know, I've already said I love the interpreters. I love this chapter, but could you unpack for us how they came to be understood mm-hmm. as suspicious? What is this discourse that emerged around them really all about?
1: So I wonder if we shouldn't have started with this chapter because, in many ways, it's where my interest in the subject began. For many, many years, you know, we we have known that late Qing Xinjiang was a period of a civilizing project of some sort in which. Confucian schools enrolled Turkic-speaking Muslim boys with the intention of making them into basically good Confucian men who would civilize their own families and in turn their own societies uh, from the ground up. And a very small amount of, uh, well, a certain amount of memoir literature addresses this. There's one memoir in particular that talks about the pain of being forced to go to one of these schools and having your family sort of turn against you and see you as an outsider. Clearly, this is these people were problematic figures in this period. When you turn to Mulamusa Musa Sairami's accounts as well, he also brings up these interpreters or these translators, but he places them at the dawn of human history and shows how these interpreters played a role in the fracturing of the human community into a million different pieces, people who spoke different languages and therefore could no longer be part of the same family. Clearly, these translators had something to do with uh, conceptions of family, um, conceptions of society, and conceptions of identity. Sorry. The question is why and how? Uh, the, following the interpreters gets us to the point of contact between ordinary Turkic-speaking Muslim people and a Chinese administration that was largely monolingual in Chinese and hopelessly incapable of administering the people that they were intended to administer. This is a basic problem of communication. Um, it was these interpreters who instead of becoming good Confucian men as was intended, instead learned to use their linguistic abilities for their own purposes and for their own families and ultimately to profit off of this information gap that existed between state and society. And that information gap is something which existed across the Qing administration at this point. You know, if you look at Sichuan, if you look at anywhere else in the Qing, um, there is a point where the the caseload uh, of the magistrate is so great that it is simply necessary to employ someone to translate between local society and all of its complex vicissitudes and bring that into the simpler, intelligible language of the state to make it legible. In the case of of late Qing, Xinjiang, these interpreters uh, were such were obviously indispensable but also very tricky figures. Now you can see in the chapter how you know, they could take the concerns of local society or certain elites and make them intelligible to the state, engaging in a kind of mimesis that, that gave power to the petitioners and allowed them to elicit a certain reaction from state power. But, of course, they are also capable of manipulating uh, manipulating these statements in ways that – that served other interests. And given their ability to take bribes uh, and profit off of their control over representation, naturally people came to see them not as conduits for communication, but as people who in fact prevented the proper flow of information from the common people to those who are meant to govern them. Their constant position at this junction uh, between different linguistic realms, different uh, different. Different cultures. Oh God! Between different linguistic realms and different sort of documentary cultures, you know, of course, gave them an air of the, of the disturbing and the uncanny, as is really common for interpreters cross culturally. Um, you know, we see this going forward well into the into the middle of the twentieth century. Is that these interpreters retained a tremendous amount of power locally uh, and used it to their own advantages?
2: Thank you for you know sort of charting out. You know, how, how they get this, you know, this uh, this guise of uh, and why they get uh, marked as being, you know, shifty suspect. Um, but I think it's worth pointing out for, you know, for listeners that, you know, where I, I have highlighted, because I, am, I clearly i am um, <laughs> uh, using my host privilege here. Uh, I've highlighted the interpreters, but the, they are, you know, definitely not the only people who come up in this book. Um, And, you know, I think it's worth stressing just how many individual named and unnamed people there are, because not only do you, you know, you start each chapter with the story of one individual or the part of a story of one individual, Um, and there are so many more woven uh, throughout the chapters of this book, Uh, you know, which, and I'm sure you know this, but I'll point it out all the same, (laughs) adds a really rich layer to this book and really drives home your point about how this is a, a history of the, the everyday, of ordinary people on the ground, not of, uh, again, not of elites. Um, so, and this, you know, I think really comes, comes home, comes clear in chapter four, which looks at family, at the gender defects of the civilizing project. Because as you've already touched on, um, family and marriage in particular was at the heart of the Xiang army's project in Xinjiang. Um, So here you look at how the Muslim family was forcibly transformed uh, through, you know, the resettlement of women into new marriages, the promotion of family norms. Uh, You begin this chapter with the story of one rowdy young Chinese man uh, nicknamed Pockmark, um, his relations with a Muslim woman. You tell another story here. of someone who was found to have held a Chinese woman in bondage, or according to him, he had been ordered to marry the woman. Uh, You tell another story of a woman who as a means of survival, married a soldier. And there's many other stories of different men acquiring wives in different ways. There's a lot going on in this chapter, and I don't think that we could possibly do any justice to the wealth and volume of all the individual stories. Um, But is there one story, one individual uh, that you want to highlight from this chapter?
1: This is why it was.
2: This this is an impossible question because (laughs) there are many. So I'm asking you the impossible question of choosing one. Um,
1: This is why it was necessary to talk about the interpreters first because it is the interpreters who make the archive. And it's necessary to understand that process of representation and how this complex. Alien society becomes intelligible to the state. How the state makes it intelligible, to then understand the gender politics and the sexual politics, that I think we're actually at the heart of this history. It's I feel kind of sad that we wait until chapter four to make it clear, but <laughs> all these stories, because they're so, they're all inflected with the politics of the archive, um, and they've all been obscured in a certain way, have to be placed in the in that context, that context where it is only possible to speak within these specific registers that are approved by the state. You know, in chapter three, we, we see how you know we can look at the physical lines where they would cross things out in testimonies and alter them to be legible to the state. That's how we need to read this chapter because it concerns very sensitive issues that people didn't necessarily want to reveal to the state. And many of these stories are highly fragmentary uh, because for the most part, uh, you know, this story is made mostly about what the state would have considered marriage and chastity. And those issues mainly were sent back to the sub-magisterial level to be mediated on the local level. And so it was tough to pick out one story that would tell all of the things that I wanted to emphasize, given that I think that the sexual politics is actually at the heart of the reification of identities in the everyday. Firstly, you mentioned the story of a woman, uh, Rubeda Khan who, in an act of survival, is a woman who sold herself to a former Chinese soldier. I want to emphasize this one because, okay, so Ruvae Khan sells herself to Zhu Chunting, a uh, demobilized Xiang army soldier. It's a very common story in this period. If you open up the so-called rights section, the like of the archive, the first decade is full of these stories, most of which are more fragmentary. They have a mixed heritage daughter who's named uh, Taohar or Peach Blossom. It's a very typical name for a half Turkic Muslim, half Han Chinese um, daughter in this period. Ruveda Khan is then left behind by Zhu Chunting, who leaves her in the care of some of his old army buddies. Again, very, very common phenomenon. These army buddies, who presuming are, presumably are benefiting from her domestic labor, the way that Zhu Chunting had benefited from her reproductive and sexual labor, you know, they supposedly have permission to trade her and her labor labor to other people, and they do so through Hui intermediaries. This is also a very common part of the story, is that Turkic-speaking Muslim women, what we now call Uyghurs, what they then called Musulman or Muslim, were frequently trafficked by Hui, Chinese-speaking Muslims, who also regularly spoke Turkic language, and so could be intermediaries, trafficked to uh, Han Chinese soldiers and settlers. And I think it's this... Intersection of the economic dimensions um, of domination with uh, linguistic and religious difference that really reified those boundaries, and so ruveda Khan, you know, she struggles against this. She refuses to be sold. She ends up being tied up and thrown in the back of a wagon. Her brother, or someone who claims to be her brother, again we have the politics of the archive, finds out and tries to get her freed, but by then she's already been trafficked off to another town in the Turpan Depression way, we haven't even mentioned that this whole book is focusing on one place in Xinjiang called Durban. Um, she's trafficked off to, to another town where she refuses to serve her new husband, Yang Bencheng, who, by the way, if you look at the actual record, Yang Bencheng is not a family man. He lives with nine other demobilized soldiers in a house together, um, which raises a number of questions about sort of um, sexuality and labor uh, in, in late Qing Xinjiang. Eventually, she commits suicide. She kills herself by swallowing opium. She doesn't get justice, however. You know, I think a lot of us know if we look at uh, women's suicide in, in the Qing, we understand through work like Vivian Ng that um, suicide is a way of having agency in death by pointing out that what has been done to you is injustice. But instead, the state... Uh, Gives her a memorial art, celebrating her faith to her former husband, making her out to be a good Confucian widow. I think this is what Jan Tice calls the chastising state, right? All of these acts, which are meant to sort of bring agency back to this individual and perhaps reflects uh, her own position and her own desires and her own struggles against um, this terrible situation that she found herself in the state ends up using them for its own propagandistic purposes in order to show that even these Turkic Muslim women who are previously construed as being um, wonton or even animalistic in the Qing documents are in fact converting to good Confucianism and they have developed a good sense of the importance of family and of chastity. And so it's a very tragic story that touches upon a number of the very central issues, I think, both in the representation of the history in the state archive which I think we need to uh, be much more critical on our use of. Um, but also in the, 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 the deeper sets of issues surrounding economy and ethnicity that I think are are essential to understanding the emergence of, of new identities in this period.
2: Perfect. I think that, you know, speaks so clearly to your sort of summary there about this particular story and what we can draw from it. Uh, really speaks to you know chapter four as a whole, right? And you you mentioned also there uh, that this really gets us to the representation of history, um, and this of course brings us it's very effortlessly really into the final part of the book, chapters five and six, because if you know the first the first part, chapters one to two, were about the idea of the civilizing project, three to four, the effects on the ground. Uh, five to six are really about the memory of it. Um, and chapter five is another really beautiful chapter that looks at the sort of the politics of collected memory. And you argue here that the Muslim uprisings and subsequent reconquest were experienced and remembered as historical trauma. And I just want to pick out one aspect of this that comes through in this chapter. And that is that one of the main focuses of this chapter is Uh, human remains, human bodies, because as you point out here, such remains became, um, in this fraught moment, emblematic not only of personal or familial loss, but of the imagined community's loss of collective collective heritage. A corpse could stand for many things, a personal threat or a sign of impending disaster, a lost parent or a lost national hero. Um, And this chapter was, to me at least, one of the places in the book where we really see identities and uh, imagined communities coming through really, really clearly. Um, so could you say a little bit about these identities, which as you show in this chapter, really come out of mass conflict and trauma?
1: Mm. So thank you for emphasizing those dimensions of it. Um, you know, I think in the China field, we have a tendency when we think about community and the emergence of large-scale subjectivity is to go back to sort of Benedict Anderson and these very classic, almost very safe statements about the nature of, um, groupness, what it means to belong. Um, and for me, you know, I, I I think that we need to get, it's no longer the early nineties. Look, we need to get to more recent theories of groupness, um, and think in a more finely grained way about the kinds of identification that exist and have existed in the past, I think Rogers Brubaker, in particular, in more recent work, has pointed out the flexibility and interpenetration of religious, ethnic, and linguistic modes of identification of the sort that I think we can see as being primary uh, and dominant in this period. And I, I see a transition in the Muslim uprisings and in their aftermath, say the war and its reconstruction. And there, I think there are parallels with the American experience there. Um a shift from more flexible kinds of identity or um, a certain set of boundaries towards a new set of more reified, seemingly ethnicized um, differences, hard boundaries between communities. Um, I was very much inspired by the work of Toby Meyerfong, her book on What Remains, but also uh, Vincent Brown in The Reaper's Garden. Uh, some work on trauma and genocide to think about the particular role of violence and remains um, in shaping collective consciousness. Um, This is something that came out very clearly from the sources, both in Chinese and in Chagatai, was the way that people spoke about the Muslim uprisings as a first moment of uh, the world falling apart and an old order giving away to chaos, which led in turn to a new sort of order, wherein the old Qing empire had disappeared, and with it, the relative degree of peace and stability that had existed. Violence broke out, and then there's a tremendous sense of loss, and really sort of a pointless loss, of people's lives being disrupted and upended all across China, and even all across, um, maybe ways across the world. And people asking why this was. Um, that plays out in the, the mass level, which we can talk about when you look at Sairami's work, but on the local level, it played out in all these negotiations over what people deserved um, from their experiences in that violence. If you'd been displaced, if your family had been killed, you know you can make a claim to the land that had been left behind, or you can make a claim to redress on that basis. But to invoke the uprisings, to invoke the, the sort of mass trauma, if you will, was also profoundly dangerous. Not just on a psychological level. I don't want to psychologize my my historical subjects, um, but in representations of the past and bring up that violence in in text, it invoked uh, all. It invoked a complex politics that many people wanted to leave behind, and yet that remained very much present in society, whether people liked it or not. What I found was that. The rhetoric of trauma, if you will, the the rhetoric of violence and the rhetoric of the bones that were left behind and the search for one's ancestors um, lent a tremendous significance and power to people's claims, even in the everyday, such that invoking your own lost ancestry or even the ancestry of your community became an effective means to talk about yourself and what you needed and to elicit responses from power, to hold power over others. Increasingly, in the context of the Turban Depression, where this book is very much set, um, Turkic-speaking Muslims made claims on behalf of the ancestors of all Turkic-speaking Muslims, and Hui made claims for the ancestors of all the Hui, and Han made claims for the ancestors of all the Han, regardless of where they had come from, whether it was Shanxi or Tianjin or Hunan. And so you can almost see in real time how discourses about familial or personal loss in the uprisings give way to discourses of communal loss and communal claims to land and to um, you know a legitimate uh, sorry and to legitimate settlement in this territory and in this place
2: absolutely. and it's I mean it's as you've just as you've just indicated there it's this is a chapter that deals with complex identities, complex politics, but it also manages to be, at least this is how <laughs> I experienced it, um, an intimately physical chapter. This, this is sort of how I read it. Um, it remains, you know, as you were just saying, deeply, deeply rooted um, on, the local, um, on the local level, as you sort of flagged there. This chapter in particular, but the book as a whole, is very much rooted in Torpan. Um, and I think that comes through, again, very physically um, in this part of the book in particular.
1: Thank you for saying that. I just want to emphasize that when you read the historiography of of the Uyghur homelands of East Turkestan or Xinjiang, I've always asked, where are the people? Um, It's often a historiography that takes the entire region as its subject. Um, And we very, very rarely get a look at the stories of people on the ground, as it were. I, I simply thought it would be a valuable intervention to try to address that intimate level. And I'm so happy that it came out clearly in this chapter.
2: It, it, at least it, it did to this reader. Um, so I will, I will claim that it will for all. Uh, but from you know, this very local, intimately intimate chapter, um, you move then to the sort of, as you indicated before, the mass level of this history. Um, and this brings us back to our favorite historian, Sairami, the historian that we were introduced to first in chapter one. And this chapter really takes us deeply into Sairami's uh, Chagatai language uh, history and into Islamic history writing um, more broadly. And this is a complicated chapter. Sairami was, as I understand it, uh, a complicated writer who wove together different narratives in a, you know, a variety of different types of texts um, and in particular adapted arguments from Islamic history to advance uh, his own argument about the present um, and so in this chapter you show how in his history the Emperor of China becomes a just um, Persia Islamic ruler the relationship between peoples and the sovereign is conceived of as a lost family you know, as I indicated this is a complicated chapter um, but is there anything you want to highlight in particular for readers and listeners here about what Sairami, again, our favorite historian, um, thought about the Qing and the Qing Empire and China specifically?
1: You know, Sairami has always been regarded as a great historian for the evidentiary value of his work, the Tarih or Tarih You know, I, I reread him as someone who was writing from the year 1901 in the midst of the civilizing project having seen Qing power return, what he describes as a strange new form. At one point here compares Qing power to uh, the revivified corpse of a tiger and a bear (laughs) and says that, you know, this this is not the Qing that we hoped would return after the violence of the Muslim uprising. It's some strange new form of the Qing. He is writing in 1901 very explicitly for a project of recovery. I want to emphasize this. He's not just a careful historian he's engaged in a politics of memory where he wants to bring back what seemingly was lost in the year of the outbreak of the uprisings, 1864, an event that he relates directly and very intimately to uh, the events of hundreds of years past, even over a thousand years past. What he's doing for us in many ways is explaining why the Qing Empire used to be good and by explaining how it used to be legitimate and how the emperor used to be you know, a good secret Muslim who protected the Sharia, he can explain why it is so disruptive and so strange in the present. So I think that's really interesting is that he's trying to um, address a widespread sense of loss and disruption by recalling a memory of stability um, that a lot of people seem to have been looking for themselves, as I think is discussed in chapter five. For example, you know, he talks in his of legendary histories of the deeper past about how the Qing is an empire that even brings together those people whom the interpreters in ancient human history had driven apart. So the Qing is actually a unifying force in that sense, or ideally it should be. But now that they live under this strange Chinese version of Sharia, which tries to change the family, and now that they're surrounded by interpreters without whom nothing can be can be addressed to, to legitimate power. Um, Something has gone wrong, and we live in a time of disruption and worry.
2: Yeah. So, with this, you know, the sense of loss, the sense of disruption, uh, we've come really to the end of this book, and also, you know, come to the end of this you know, deeply textual, <laughs> deeply physical, and even though it is so textual, deeply rooted in the everyday and in the experiences of people, <laughs> all at once, um, wrapped up in this one book. And, you know, with that, we've also come to the end of our conversation. So now that we are here at the end um, of both the book and our time together, uh, what are you working on now, Eric? What is inspiring you at the moment?
1: Well, um, there are two things that I think end up kind of left out of the book that I'm, that need to be longer term projects for me to do justice to them. One is a story of Chinese settlers, um, because, you know, if we consider late Qing Xinjiang in terms of settler colonialism, um, when we need to acknowledge that settler Han Chinese themselves were the subject of violence and had a complex relationship to the state. And this comes through very, very clearly in the sources. So I'm kind of working on a, a broader religious history of Xiang army soldiers and how they, you know, who settled in Xinjiang and how they remained connected to uh, other Xiang army settler communities across China. Um, but the other piece that I think we need, really need to address as a field uh, is actually the economic history of the region. Now, this is something where people are going to look at this book and say, well, you're talking about colonialism in Xinjiang. Well, colonialism also involves resource extraction, it's an economic phenomenon. And I don't deny that. But one thing that I found, um, one thing I found. Well, first of all, that people spoke about the economy a great deal. Even if we don't have a lot of quantitative data at hand, the dimensions of economic inequality during the civilizing project were really, really clear. But on the other, when I attempted to address that history, I found there's been so little scholarship on the economic history of of Xinjiang um, that it was nearly, it it would take a separate seven-year-long project to untangle that history. So I'm working from the ground up right now to look at things like how did Islamic pious endowments or waqf play a role in the economy of the late 19th, and early 20th century? Um, how much did, you know, how much did, uh, how much did, did did mutton cost, for example, right? I, I have a set of pricing data the price of a sheep in the Turpan Bazaar for 20 years. Um, I'm looking at all of this stuff in an attempt to uh, as the book also tried to do with this close attention to the intimate and the personal, um, address the everyday dimensions of domination and change, uh, and also to diversify this history. So that is what I'm currently working on, is uh, just all these attempts to really diversify our picture of this period uh, and to perhaps decenter uh, ethnicity per se from the historiography of the region. Uh, and think more about the uh, complex loyalties and often surprising associations that we find when we attend to other dimensions of this history.
2: Absolutely. And I love how both of those projects that you've, both, that you've just laid out are like this one, intimately source driven, or at least as I, as I understand them, um, they sound like fascinating projects and, you know, best of luck. Yeah over the next seven or, or so years that you indicated you might take to work on them. Um, oh, I'm gosh, you yes. know, looking forward to reading them when they finally came out. So best of luck with them. Um, and thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to me about this project uh, today.
1: Oh, thank you so, and also look out for a full translation of Sairami's Taraki Hamidi in the next couple of years. So thank you, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your great questions. Uh, Always a pleasure to talk. Always a pleasure. And thanks for having me on New Books.